liftoff and the clock has started. This is 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Yes, all you eagle ears out there, you may have recognized those dulcet tones. That of my executive producer, Dottie, thank you for doing that. My name is Doug Prezak. I'd like to welcome you to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back, episode 47. It's exciting, huh? But before we get going, it's time for the state's update. After we picked up Maine last week, I was kind of hopeful we could get the others uh, that were missing, but now... That didn't happen. We're still missing Hawaii, Montana, the Dakotas, Vermont, Rhode Island, and Delaware. So <laughs> here's the deal. I know I have some listeners in New Hampshire. What do you say, you guys, a couple of you, just drive across the border into Vermont there, go to a Starbucks, tune in, listen, and I can pick up at least that one. You know, And I think uh, also Maryland, you guys can go to Delaware and get those. So we'll see what happens, and I will keep you informed on our 50-state update. I know a lot of you have asked, what's wrong with you? (laughs) It's a completion thing, I think. There's 50 of them, and I have 43. It's like like collecting baseball cards, you know? You got to get those those last ones that get the whole set. So (sighs) I need those states. Help, please. Enough of that. Let's get on with the show. Now, I know you guys are always excited to find out how these shows came to be. Wait, what? You're not excited about that? (laughs) You don't want to care? You don't really care how I came up with these ideas? Well, this one, I'm going to tell you anyway, this one, I was watching the news. There was a story about um, the whole COVID pandemic and things coming back to normal slowly, but surely I hope they are in your part of the world. But one of the things this uh, news story talked about was the COVID 10. Now, if you're not familiar with the COVID 10, that's the 10 extra pounds you put on sitting at home, snacking, doing nothing else. Personally, I think my scale thinks I went through COVID two and a half times, but that's a whole different story. But one of the things I know I need to cut out and stop eating and so I can get back into shape if I even have a chance to, and that's potato chips. I love potato chips. That's part of my problem. But guess what happened? I didn't know too much about them. So I did some research so you don't have to. The story of potato chips. After researching 47 different topics, let me tell you, the one about potato chips is the one with the most mystery. Nobody really knows when, how, who, where, potato chips started. Now, there are a lot of of theories, so we'll go into those, and you can make up your own mind. The popular tale of the invention of the potato chip is that in the summer of 1853 at Moon's Lake House in Saratoga Springs, New York, uh, rich guy Cornelius Vanderbilt, he was waiting for his dinner at this uh, restaurant. In the kitchen, the African-American, Native American cook named George Crum prepared the meal likely was partridge with french fries. Well, when the plate was presented to Vanderbilt, he refused it. Vanderbilt said the french fries were too thick. It seems that uh, Crum didn't really much appreciate that criticism, so he shaved the thinnest possible pieces of potato into hot oil and fried them to a crisp. He sent the browned and brittle rounds to the table as kind of an insult, but turns out Vanderbilt was thrilled with the snack. The restaurant owner, Harriet Moon, soon declared that these chips would henceforth be served in delicate paper cornucopias as the signature dish of Moon's Lake House. Unfortunately, there's several problems with the crumb story. As great a story as it may be, none of it's true. They start with the fact that Vanderbilt wasn't even in the United States at the time the incident supposedly happened. A few years later, an obituary for 103-year-old Catherine Adkins Wicks maintained that she, in fact, 
was said to have been the originator of the potato chip. Wicks was Crumb's sister, and she worked alongside him in the kitchen. In one variation of the disgruntled diner story, it's Catherine, not Crumb, who carved the potatoes very, very paper thin. She accidentally dropped a thin slice into a boiling pot of fat while peeling potatoes, retrieved it with a fork, and she had her eureka moment. But still, Vanderbilt was no part of these stories. A more recent theory is that Lake House's potato chips actually precede even Crumb and Wicks by four years. An article in the New York Herald in 1849 says that, quote, fame of Eliza the cook for crisping potatoes, adding scores of people visit the lake and carry away specimens of the vegetable as prepared by her as curiosities. Regrettably, Eliza's last name and anything else about her seems to be lost to history. Now, even though he didn't invent the potato chip, George Crumb can still be given kudos for making them popular. Crumb's potato chips were insanely popular, and they were called Saratoga chips. When Crumb opened his own restaurant called Crumb's House, one of the things that made it ridiculously popular was the basket of chips he put on each table. Now, you'd think he'd have done something to capitalize on the popularity of the chip, but Crumb never even attempted to patent what was his trademark creation. That's because no amount of culinary genius would allow Crumb to even apply for a patent. Crumb was the son of a black father and a Native American mother, and he simply wasn't allowed to apply for a patent. That was a right minorities didn't enjoy, and it's also why potato chips were replicated and sold without Crumb getting any kind of moolah out of the deal. Now, whether or not anybody at Saratoga Springs has actually invented the potato chips is not known, but the town certainly did a lot to popularize them. For years, they were known as Saratoga chips, and they are still sold under that name today. I looked, they are. Okay, but if potato chips weren't born in Saratoga, where did they come from? Well, food historians suggest they go back to at least 1817 when an English doctor named William Kitchener came out with the first edition of his pioneering cookbook, The Cook's Oracle, and it was published in both British and American editions. One recipe called, quote, potatoes fried in slices sounds a whole lot like today's potato chip. Later revisions referred to the dish as, quote, potatoes fried in slices or shavings. Now, the book called for the potatoes to be peeled and then sliced or shaved as if you would peel a lemon. The shavings were then to be fried in lard or dripping, and once they're crisp, they should be left to cool and sprinkled with salt. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a potato chip to me. So who was this potato chip making doctor? Well, according to the book's preface, he was a doctor most concerned with food preparation. He had noticed that many people paid way more attention to the quality of their animals' food over their own. And he wrote the book to teach people proper nutrition. So there you have it. It appears the potato chips are a Victorian-era health food. (laughs) I knew it. All righty, here's another little twist in the potato chip saga. Uh, Lay's potato chips, you know Lay's potato chips, they're one of the most popular brands in the United States. And if you're of a certain age, let's say about 11, you might think the name Lay's is kind of risque and a little bit hilarious. Well, strangely, you would not be entirely wrong. According to Snopes, Herman Lay was one of the first people to make potato chips into a commercial endeavor. He started in the American Southeast and his product got a major boost in popularity thanks to a bizarre claim. Whispered rumors claimed that the potato chips had a certain aphrodisiac quality, 
and that's not the kind of a rumor that any kind of salesman wants to squash. The Smithsonian says the belief in potatoes' mystical, magical nature goes back a long way to the 18th century Europe. It was thought the potato was an aphrodisiac and had the power to cure leprosy. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) How do you mix aphrodisiac and leprosy in the same sentence? Let's switch gears to packaging. If you want potato chips today, you buy a bag or a tube, but we'll talk about that a little later. For decades, potato chips were actually packaged in barrels or tins, which left the potato chips at the bottom stale or crumbled. So apparently nothing really has changed. It wasn't until the 1920s when Laura Scudder, you kind of recognize that name, right? Introduced the idea of packaging chips in bags that the potential to mass market them on a commercial scale was actually really possible. Now, Scudder was an entrepreneur here in Monterey Park, California, down my neck of the woods in L.A., and she was mainly concerned with keeping her chips fresher. She tasked her employees with some after-hours work, giving them sheets of wax paper and asked them to spend the evenings ironing them together to form bags they would fill and seal the next day. This method reduced the crumbling and kept the chips fresh and crisp longer. This innovation, along with the invention of cellophane, allowed potato chips to become a mass market product. Scudder made her company's name based on freshness, and in order to guarantee that freshness, she also introduced something else to the potato chip world, dates on bags. Her company was founded in 1926, and those bags were one of the first things she added to the potato chip process. Today, chips are packaged in plastic bags with nitrogen gas blown in prior to sealing to lengthen the shelf life and provide protection against crushing. Yeah, right. You can tell that to the bag of chips I just bought. I can hear those crumbs rattling on the bottom of that bag filled with nitrogen. Along came World War II, and that changed a lot of things, and that included potato chips. According to Food and Drink in American History, they were originally declared to be a, quote, non-essential food. Oh, come on. Which meant that all potato chip production needed to cease until the end of the war. By this time, there were enough manufacturers, and they had enough clout to successfully lobby for the change in the designation and getting an overturn was one of the best things that could have happened to the potato chip industry for a few reasons. First, sugar was rationed and the availability of the sweet feel-good treats was at a low. So people turned to potato chips to satisfy their snack cravings and sales skyrocketed on the home front. Also, abroad, troops were being sustained by chips too. According to the Telegraph, which is a newspaper in uh, Britain, in case you're wondering. Anyway, according to the Telegraph, they were already firmly entrenched in British culture and entire troop ships packed with chips were shuttled off to deliver chips to the Allied troops all over the world. Now, do you like a flavoring on your potato chip? Well, before the 1950s, it was plain or nothing. Customers even had to salt their own chips. The Huffington Post says, if you like flavored chips, then you need to thank Ireland's Joe Spud Murphy. <laughs> Do you think Spud, his nickname, is a coincidence? Murphy founded Tato in 1954, which is kind of odd because he disliked plain potato chips. He called them insipid. So he set out to develop a manufacturing process that would allow them to flavor chips. He and employee Seamus Burke figured out a way to do it, and they released their very first flavored chip. Tato's first flavors are still among the most popular today. Cheese and onion, no. 
then salt and vinegar. Yeah, that was okay. Uh, here in the United States, the first flavors released were different but no less popular, sour cream and onion and barbecue. Now, if you're of a certain age, I won't say how old, but I remember <laughs> there was an ad campaign by Lay's Potato Chips that stated, bet you can't eat just one. Well, it turns out that statement actually is founded kind of in science. 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 <laughs> God. There have been ton of snack foods that kind of fallen off the radar, but why did potato chips last so long? Well, there's actually a strange bit of psychology behind it all. And in 2013, researchers presented some findings at the National Meeting and Exposition of the American Chemical Society. Uh-oh. The study was on a phenomenon called hedonic hyperphagia, and it's basically the idea that people eat because it feels good, not because they actually need to. And I don't see anything wrong with that, guys. Potato chips are pretty much the poster child for this condition, and researchers say that's because potato chips have the perfect combination of fat, carbs, and some other still mysterious component that directly impacts the pleasure centers of the brain. Hey, we already said they're an aphrodisiac. God. Psychology Today says the addictive quality of the potato chip has something to do with their sodium content, and if that's not enough, AudioBurst found that those crinkly bags potato chips come in have been designed that way on purpose. It's all about triggering a sensory experience and ultimately makes us eat more because we enjoy the chips more. Now you know. I think this is a great place to take a break. I'm going to go get a bag of chips. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the 500-pound uh, elephant in the uh, cardboard tube. Uh, you know, Pringles. Don't go away. Here's a message of importance to millions of people who are continually pale and washed out, weak and run down. Doctors will tell you that these conditions are often caused by a deficiency of iron, the iron you need to build healthy blood to keep your body function properly and to keep you physically fit and mentally alert. Ironized yeast tablets provide you with a simple and effective way to get the daily iron your body requires. So if you're not getting the iron your body needs, if you feel weak, run down, and are easily upset, get new pep, vigor and color for only a few pennies a day. Start taking ironized yeast tomorrow. Don't do it today. Do it tomorrow. He said so. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Pringles. Now, if you have no idea what Pringles are, I need you to stop this podcast right now, go to the store, buy a can of them or a tube of them, and then come back and pick up where you left off, okay? Now, just like regular potato chips, Pringles themselves have their own controversies and mysteries and all kinds of we don't really knows. So the, the first debate over Pringles is there's a belief, technically, they're not even a potato chip. Uh, and that's according to a 1975 ruling by the FDA. But first, let's get into a little bit of history. In 1956, Procter & Gamble assigned a task to a chemist named Frederick Bauer to develop a new kind of potato chip to address consumer complaints about the broken, greasy, stale chips, as well as the air in the bags. Bauer spent two years developing the saddle-shaped chips from fried dough. The saddle shape of Pringles is mathematically known as a hyperbolic paraboloid. Unfortunately, Bauer couldn't figure out how to make the chips palatable, so he was pulled off the task to work on another brand. 
In the mid-1960s, another Procter & Gamble researcher named Alexander Lepa, he restarted Bauer's work and he actually was able to succeed in improving the taste. Now, although Bauer designed the shape of the Pringles chip, Lepa's name is on the patent. Procter & Gamble began selling Pringles in Indiana in 1968, and by 1975, they were available across most of the U.S., and by 1991, they were distributed internationally. Now, yet there's another strange footnote to Pringles' history. When they first came out, Pringles actually were a dismal failure. It wasn't until a 1980 revamp in marketing that the public was willing to accept these suspiciously uniform chips, and the rest, of course, is history. So, why the name Pringles? Well, one theory, again, nobody really knows, one theory suggests that two Procter uh, advertising employees lived on Pringle Drive in Finneytown, which is just north of Cincinnati. Procter & Gamble felt the name paired well with potato chips. Well, another theory says that Procter Gamble chose the Pringles name from a Cincinnati phone book. And yet another source says the name Pringles was, quote, chosen out of a hat to promote a family name appeal. Now, this last theory is the one that makes the most sense, uh, at least to me, but you know, who am I? And this refers to Mark Pringle. Pringle filed a U.S. patent titled, quote, Method and Apparatus for Processing Potatoes, and he did that on March 5, 1937. His work was cited by Procter & Gamble in filing their own patent for improving the taste of dehydrated processed potatoes. Now, the product was originally known as Pringle's Newfangled Potato Chips, but other snack manufacturers objected, saying that Pringle's failed to meet the definition of a potato chip. The claim was that since they were made from potato-based dough, rather than being sliced potatoes like a real potato chip, then you can't call them potato chips. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration weighed in on the matter, and in 1975, they ruled Pringles couldn't only use the word chip in their product name with the phrase, quote, potato chips made from dried potatoes. <laughs> Faced with a, such a, a lengthy name, Pringles eventually renamed their product potato crisps instead of chips. Now, a quick side note here, because it's going to come up. In Britain, what we know in the U.S. as chips are known as crisps in the U.K. So in July of 2008, in the London High Court, Procter & Gamble lawyers actually successfully argued that Pringles were not crisps, even though labeled potato crisps on the container. Procter & Gamble stated that the potato content was only 42%, and their shape is, quote, not found in nature, uh, end quote, so therefore they're not really crisps. So <laughs> keep in mind, they won the argument. Hey, we have the stuff we call Pringles crisps, but they're not really made wholly out of potatoes, and they're not found in nature, so they're really not crisps. Um, and yeah, they won. On May 31st of 2012, the Kellogg Company officially acquired Pringles for $2.7 billion as part of a plan to grow its international snacks business. The acquisition of Pringles makes Kellogg the second largest snack company in the world. Now, of everything I've told you so far in this podcast, this is probably the best one. The Pringles logo is a stylized cartoon character uh, that was designed by Lewis R. Dixon. It's the head of a male figure, and this guy actually has a name, and his name is Julius Pringles. 
or abbreviated as Mr. P. Until, <laughs> until 2001, the character had eyebrows. Well, crap, that's the school bell. <laughs> that means my 20 minutes are up. But you know what? I have to finish this. It's just a couple more minutes, so I'm going to keep you after class. So bear with me, okay? Where was I? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Julia Springles had a big mustache and big eyebrows and a bow tie that framed the product's name. In 2020, the character was again revised, this time with a minimalistic approach. Take a look at the can, you'll see what I mean. And lastly, Pringles is especially known for its paperboard tube can uh, with a foil-lined interior. Remember Frederick Bauer, the guy who invented uh, the Pringle Crisp? Well, he also created the Pringles tube that we all know and love. In the end, Bauer's children honored his request to bury him in one of the cans by placing part of his cremated remains in a Pringles container in his grave. And with that, we're going to put the top back on this tube of potato chips or potato crisps or pressed potato dough or whatever you want to call it. But first, what have we learned? Well, we learned that no one, and I mean no one, really knows uh, how or when potato chips were first created, although George Crumb seems to get the most credit. We learned that if you like barbecue flavoring or sour cream and onion or salt and vinegar chips, you can thank Joe Spud Murphy. And we learned the guy on the can of Pringles has a name. You can call him Mr. P or Julius. And that will bring this episode to a close. We're only about two minutes over, so I will make it up to you uh, next week, I promise. Uh, So thank you very much for tuning and listening. I do appreciate it. And I will talk to you next time on 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye. Go have a potato chip. Bet you can't eat just one. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at 20MYNGB. 20MYNGB. And that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye.